I have done some things like this and I personally have felt some real discernible improvements in things like hunger, uh, you know, just, just even energy. And as I go through some of these ingredients, you'll see why, but then we have to get down to, you know, is it really worthwhile? You know, what, which ingredients are, are helpful, which ones may not be, you know, what are maybe some potential risks and so forth. Right. So as you guys saw, kind of a late entry to my, my plans, I, I really tried. A couple of people had asked questions about what we were talking about in terms of recovery, like contrast baths, ice, things like that, compression for better recovery. Heather, who is a physical therapist and part of our group, usually contributed some information. I'm just not sure that's as worthwhile as, as another question I got this week. Somebody sent me uh, a question through email, like, you know, here's a picture of this glucose disposal agent from this supplement company. I'm taking it and it is really helping with hunger. Why is that, Joe? What's it doing to me or for me? You know, why is it working? And I also did a podcast. Somebody interviewed me probably four to six months ago about just glucose disposal agents. And it's, it's been around for a while. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to go through a little bit of history narration as I, as I move through today's workshop. Um, but in the last two, three, five years, it's really become normalized, almost like creatine or pre-workouts. People are just grabbing glucose disposal agents as a must for dieting. So I want to cover kind of what they are, what they do, the physiology in the body of why there's even a claim that, that there's something good to this. Um, if I were in front of you guys live in a, in a workshop format, I would ask a show of hands, like who has taken these things? And I would, I would want to know who's had some good results. Um, but let's, let's save that because it would get kind of weird on zoom. Uh, I, I have to say I have done some things like this and I personally have felt some real discernible improvements in things like hunger, uh, you know, just, just even energy. And as I go through some of these ingredients, you'll see why, but then we have to get down to, you know, is it really worthwhile? You know, what, which ingredients are, are helpful, which ones may not be, you know, what are maybe some potential risks and so forth. So let, let's jump right in, first of all, to um, a little bit of a parade. I'm not going to go through every single one of these studies. I'm going to list maybe eight to 10 studies just to kind of show you what has been researched. Then I'm going to pull all the way back into just looking at the physiology of, of why this is even a thing. So L-carnitine is one of the very first things you should think of in glucose disposal. And that is because its claim is to, uh, and I'm going to just use air quotes here, to shuttle uh, fat or, or energy into the mitochondria, into muscle cells to be used as energy. So it's supposed to help direct energy production. And that's kind of the claim in general of glucose disposal agents. So uh, I, I was a little bit disappointed when I looked around at some of the big coach names in the industry, some of the, you know, quote, influencers, uh, there wasn't a lot of direct explanation. They were just copying and pasting some of the same quotes. Uh, even if you went to Google or Google Scholar and you said, what is a glucose disposal agent? 
uh, everybody out there just just snips these kinds of claims that it helps to quote you know shuttle energy uh, into muscle cells to be used as energy instead of fat. So there is a supposed claim that you're going to burn more body fat, and that's kind of it. Like you're 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 almost you, you get this this uh, feeling or or this this in, intuition from what they're saying that you're. You know, a glucose disposal agent is disposing glucose, meaning your body's not going to be able to convert that into body fats. You're going to be helping yourself lose body fat faster. So, so this particular headline here, L-carnitine improves glucose disposal in type two diabetics. So just taking this, um, this, you know, compound, you know, does have that kind of effect, but when we get to part two, which I hope will be next week, I'm going to show you how we're, how small amounts we're talking, you know, yes, there's impact and yes, anything that you may not get a lot of in your normal daily diets can have greater impact, but it's not that substantial, but let me, let me show you some more claims here and some more ingredients. Uh, Garcinia Cambogia, you know, same thing associated with obesity and so forth. Um, Garcinia extract, which is where we get hydroxy citric acid and hydroxy citric acid can be used directly. Um, that's, you know, and uh, I think that's the one that's specifically in like lemons and oranges and citrus fruits and so forth um, as just a little bit of a kind of a phytonutrient. Uh, again, supposedly just because of this glucose disposal type of uh, mechanistic action. Uh, green tea extracts. So the antioxidants to green teas, I know Dr. Oz made millions pimping that, um, green tea leaf extract. Again, now this is actually looking at insulin resistance, this particular study, uh, green coffee bean extract. I, I looked at a lot of the most popular glucose disposal supplements and was trying to see all the ingredients people are throwing into those coffee, uh, bean is another one. Chromium, of course, is kind of the granddaddy of them all. Uh, that's in just about everything. Now you can even just pick up protein bars and it has usually 200 micrograms of chromium. So also glucose disposal directly, insulin signaling, all of that. Uh, Banaba leaf, another one. Barberry and different barberry uh, extracts. Berberine. Cinnamon, of course, that got to be really popular here lately improving fasting blood glucose. Um, this one, gymnemia, that one I had never heard of. So now I'm going to talk about what glucose metabolism really is, what glucose disposal is supposed to look like. Cause glucose disposal is only one half of glucose metabolism. You have glucose disposal. You also have, have glucose synthesis using it for energy and so forth. And, and those are two sides of the same coin when it comes to our goals as people living active lives, dieting, and so forth. So I'm, I'm going to get to this in more detail later, but I hope the first question you have in seeing all of those various ingredients, pretty diverse in where they come from and you know what, what their actual properties would be biochemically, and I want you to ask yourself, what could they possibly do? What would their impact be on blood sugar and why? So you know you have normal fasting blood sugar levels and then postprandial 
blood sugar levels. And those are the ways we measure things like pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome and so forth, A1C levels. So what would, what would cinnamon be doing that would directly reduce blood sugar? What would be that mechanism of action? Um, I'm not going to answer those questions yet. Like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make a chart and go through every single most popular, probably even more than I have today. And, and we're going to go through those chemically and see, because as I scanned through some of these studies and a lot of the, even the titles hinted at positive results, you know, they're not always fantastic. And I want to show you some other things that have some greater impact. So, so on to exactly what glucose disposal means. We know glucose, the smallest form of sugar in our bodies, is central to energy consumption. It's our primary metabolic fuel for cells. Um, anything that we consume can be broken down into glucose, even, even protein, if we're in a really harsh dieting state or body comp is super low. Uh, glucose is also the precursor for other forms of carbs used in the body, like even ribose, you know, you get deeper into the Krebs cycle and so forth, uh, pyruvic acid, you're, you're looking at how glucose plays a role in all of this. Uh, glucose is that final substrate that converts to ATP for that direct energy. So obviously glucose is important. It has a role. We, we need it for, for our normal energy balance, but of course, too much and we run into problems and even people who are super super active just because we're in kind of an overfed western diet culture you know we can we can constantly kind of fight this you can you can be somebody who works out and you eat well enough to maintain your body weight but that doesn't mean you're not kind of on the edge of catastrophe for example uh take somebody who is, is super active, trains really hard, maybe competes in physique sport, maybe not, uh, but they always seem to be watching their food. Things are kind of guarded, they're, they're meal prepping, they're eating well, maybe they have a way of having calorie modulations, a higher calorie day once a week or something, but take that person away from that environment. Let's just say that you can no longer compete in physique sport, you no longer have these these external goals, how far away is that average person away from something like pre-diabetes, you know, where all of a sudden their blood sugar levels are, you know, extremely high um, and so forth. I mean, I know, for example, genetically, my blood sugar level is not that low. I mean, when I get fasting blood tests, I'm usually in the nineties and uh, you know, it'd be a lot better if you were in the seventies or eighties. After meals, we should, you know, fluctuate up to about, you know, 150 as a max somewhere in there. But I've seen people who are pre-diabetic, you know, at well over 400 and, and even, you know, somebody who is type two diabetic, uh, you know, they may go over a thousand and that's just how high blood sugar goes. So too much blood glucose at once, meaning too many carbohydrates in a meal, too much frequency where you just constantly nibble and eat glucose. And so you, you always have that, that steady titration of, of blood sugar staying elevated. But then this last thing I want to talk about is where we're going to spend most of our day too little actual clearing. The phrase glucose disposal 
means your body's doing something with your elevated glucose levels. You are disposing of it. So I'll just tell you flat out, like how you dispose of it, that side of the balance sheet, getting, getting extra uh, clearance is the money shot. That's, that's what you want to do. So we know that while we are at rest, I talk a lot about non-exercise activity and the fact that maybe at rest, you're burning 50 to 70 calories an hour. Then you get up and you start moving around, just, just walking. You, you can double that. You do low intensity exercise. You can triple that. And then high intensity exercise, you can go at 500, 600% of your basal calorie use. So that's clearance. You know, all of a sudden now you're, you're putting that metabolic demand on your body. And, and that's what I'm going to show today should be the standard. If you're going to do something or think about blood glucose disposal, that's how your body disposes of it. it, it it's normal basal metabolic need. That's just baseline. But then there are those different forms of, of activity. So again, two sides of the coin, somebody who's athletic, somebody who trains hard, you know, for performing at your best, you, you need to rely on some level of energy. And uh, even in a dieting state, that's why we use terminology like a pre-workout meal or your pre-workout food. You know, what are you going to do to make sure that you primed the pump metabolically so that you can launch into that workout? And even though you're going to be increasingly using stored body fat as energy, as you get into, you know, glycogen depletion, you still want to be able to at least have that strength going in and that energy to, to pull you through to that level. So we need glucose. It's not the enemy, but then too much in too little clearance. And we're just not optimizing what we could be getting from fat loss and so forth. The problem where people start to reach for the glucose disposal agents is as they're dieting, and they feel that normal rigor, they feel hypoglycemia. If you remember the difference between uh, when your stomach is empty, those phase three gastric contractions, and you have that first wave of hunger, which is very mechanical, my, hungers, or my, my hunger is there because of that empty sensation. But then an hour or two later, once your stomach is empty and blood lipids, blood sugar levels, all of those are coming down, then you start feeling that, that low energy, you start feeling heavier, your legs are heavier, you can start feeling a little bit hypoglycemic, and, and you can start feeling hunger that way. So there's that, that empty stomach hunger that should be differentiated from, I feel like really, really weak, and that's a different sensation. And then there is also like real hunger, like I'm empty and I'm weak and I feel like I'm going to pass out. That's when, as we've talked about in the past, you could probably measure with a glucometer and see that your blood sugar levels are getting pretty low, maybe in the 60s, 50s, you know, somewhere in there. And you start feeling those sensations. I'm afraid a lot of people like my friend who emailed me feel like, you know, if I could just do something to mitigate that hunger. And it seems that these glucose disposal agents can do that. And my, another question I have for you is why, if that really is true, if you get a true physiological tempering of hunger, 
why would a glucose disposal agent do that? Because a glucose disposal agent is supposed to be shuttling energy. Remember the standard definition. It helps you shuttle energy into mitochondria and muscle cells to be used as energy. So it's clearing glucose. Well, if you're clearing glucose, blood sugar is coming down. So you should feel hungrier, right? So what is happening with these, you know, and I don't want to just say it's placebo because I, I think people are legitimately feeling these changes. So now we have to talk about things like insulin receptor site sensitivity, maybe a reaction directly with the hypothalamus and hunger. Um, there are other things in play. You know, you, you've got the, the insulin and glucagon balance between storage and retrieval. The liver, of course, is what's really monitoring those blood sugar levels and, and then directing your pancreas to be releasing insulin for storage or glucagon for retrieval. And if you're if you are on the way down, if if your energy levels are coming down because blood sugar is coming down, then insulin is being reduced. Glucagon ostensibly would be increased so your body can start retrieving energy. So glycolysis using glucose as energy or lipolysis turning, you know, you're liberating fat from fat cells, gluconeogenesis, taking those substrates like the lipids from your body fat cells, turning them back into glucose. So all of that is happening. And, and that's where we start getting a true dampening of hunger on that back end. So even when you're empty, your stomach's empty, you haven't had food in three or four hours, and yet you take a glucose disposal agent and your hunger goes down. If that is truly speeding up gluconeogenesis, if it's truly making your mitochondria generate energy faster so you're keeping up, your hypothalamus may directly start reducing hunger signals. You could be becoming more fat adapted at a little bit faster rate through that gluconeogenesis impact. You know, these are all questions that I would I would want people to ask and know the answers to if they're going to spend 40, 50, 60 bucks a month on a certain supplement. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some questions. I know you guys will probably have some questions and, and hopefully I can answer them. Some of them I may not be able to, but uh, let, let me jump in here and show you just a little pictorial representation. So you have glucose in the bloodstream. Just imagine that center graphic, you know, glucose, that's, that's what's available to you. So uh, starting from your digestive system, you've, you've, you know, digested those carbohydrates and you've got this glucose. It, it's going to be available everywhere. So muscle tissue that has been depleted. So you've trained, we know that the body is looking to resynthesize glycogen there. So you're going to, you're going to take some glucose and insulin's job, remember, is to shuttle this glucose where it needs to go. So insulin is going to take it to muscle cells. It's going to go into the liver. It's circulating there anyway. And so the liver is just kind of harvesting what it needs to resynthesize its normal levels, at least as high as it can. Uh, your pancreas is being stimulated directly by glucose levels to decide whether it's going to be releasing glucagon or insulin. And if we have, if we have too much blood sugar, we've eaten too much at one time, then insulin is going to be shuttling it also into fat cells. So there's very much a continuum as to how much we consume and so forth. But when we get 
toward that pre-diabetic level when we've just been a little bit too carb dominant, probably under-exercising, then your body, because you've been releasing insulin at a lot greater levels, your insulin receptor sites become uh, just, just degraded. They become desensitized. So insulin in this next graphic, it kind of shows that, you know, glucose is supposed to go into a cell, whether it's a muscle cell or a, you know, fat cell, but to get in there, it has to have insulin as that carrier. So when, when we start talking about insulin sensitivity and those feelings of hypoglycemia, sometimes it's because we just don't have the right affinity in those cells for insulin blood sugars there, insulin's there, but those receptor sites have been degraded so much over time because we have so much insulin running around all the time in our body because we eat too many carbohydrates in too high amounts, then you just start getting that resistance to it. And, and I mentioned a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about exercise and, and you know, different forms of cardio that a lot of times it's not even just your like VO2 max or something that limits how hard you can exercise. But when you start increasing your intensity of training, you're, you're having a massive impact on things like this, even the insulin receptor site affinity to even be able to receive that energy. So somebody who's not very, um, you know, well-conditioned, they can get super hypoglycemic. They, 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 they join a workout class. There's, you know, Hey, it's got, it, this is my time. It's January one. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to go exercise. And all of a sudden, 15 minutes in, they're laying on the floor, you know, white as a ghost hypoglycemic and ready to pass out. That's not just because they're deconditioned from an oxygen standpoint. It can be that their, their muscle cells aren't even using glucose well because they're, they're so uh, desensitized in this area. But let me show you, this is going to be, um, I apologize, it's kind of a harsh graphic here, but, uh, but it's, it's one of the best ones I could find on, on just what this does in an acute and chronic state, like, like what disposal looks like. Those of you who have heard me talk about metabolic positioning or the metabolic switch, this is a perfect picture of it. Because what you see on the bottom axis is hours. So from you know zero hours to 24 hours in that first graphic, and then two to seven days, and then 42 days. Then on the on the left is just kind of you know a measurement of glucose used, grams per hour. Don't don't worry about that as a variable. What I want you to look at are these graphs, because as soon as you start restricting your calories and you're not over consuming carbohydrates, look what happens in the first 24 hours. So you have a kind of a baseline level of glycogen. Let's, let's take that first dotted line there that's on the four hour mark. And let's say that's kind of your maximum glycogen level. So your liver, your muscle tissue, you have a certain amount of stored carbohydrate that, that you have available. And then as you're in this calorie deficit, over the course of the, the first couple of days, your stored glycogen levels are being used because you're in that calorie deficit. So they're coming down. Well, look what starts picking up right away. I mean, as soon as you start your calorie deficit, 
and glycogen is being used. So now your, your body knows you're tapping into stored energy, gluconeogenesis, which is creating new glucose from other substrates. So body fat, maybe amino acids, that's actually increasing. And so that, so you have to make up that gap because your body, when, when you get to that two to three day mark and you're out of stored glycogen, if you're in a perpetual calorie deficit, you're going to continue because you've been quote, clearing glucose, you've been disposing glucose, your body's going to make sure that blood sugar levels don't go down to zero and you therefore die. So right about the time when your glycogen is empty, look where gluconeogenesis peaks, you know, a perfect symmetrical representation of the fact that now you're making your own glucose. You're, you're making what you're not getting in your diet, and you're doing that from body fat, mostly if you're dieting well, if you're getting enough protein and so forth. But then over time, look at how that gluconeogenesis starts to come down because you know, there's going to be some metabolic conditioning and so forth. This particular graphic, I have to say, this is why that 42-day mark is not that representative of what we need right now. This actually comes from a starvation-type diet, like if somebody just started fasting. Like you're going to not eat any food for 42 days. You know, eventually your metabolism just shuts all the way down to protect you. But that's, that's not what we're interested. I'm, I'm interested in just those first seven days. So, so I wanted you to see that that's real glucose disposal, right? Like your body has the ability to use glucose maximally. If you don't eat anything at all for seven days or two days or even one day, that's what you're going to go through in terms of clearing glucose and then actually creating your own to make up for that. Another thing I want you to see here is that when you do that, when you're in a mild or moderate and appropriate calorie deficit, or all the way down to pure fasting, as you start seeing this transition where your body has to create its own glucose from body fat and maybe protein, um, you become way more sensitive because now your body, all of those receptor sites where you have those, those insulin receptor sites to welcome glucose in, they're, now they are peaked. Now they are looking for it. it. It's like any drug adaptation, right? As soon as you start having caffeine within a couple of days, that's your new norm. Those caffeine receptor sites in your body start shutting down. They start becoming desensitized. So now if you're taking five, 600, a thousand milligrams of caffeine a day, it now takes more than that for you to even have any impact because the receptor sites simply just downgrade to limit their own intake. Same thing with insulin and glucose. As soon as your body is, is suffering, quote unquote, from less carbohydrate, then it's going, those receptor sites start becoming, um, you know, they have higher affinity for, for that insulin and glucose. So here's what happens with exercise, because this is, as I said, the, the money shot, the mother load, the, the big daddy of all ways to dispose of glucose. I love the fact that you're going to see some other studies that we've talked about, at least reference to, or some of the information, some of the, the points of physiological interest because in this particular study, when they're looking at postprandial improvement in glucose disposal in insulin sensitivity in pre-diabetic adults, so, so first of all, right off the bat, we're looking at pretty deconditioned people who are overweight. 
And we're going to see if exercise, or we are going to see, I should say, not if, we're going to see what the effect of exercise is on glucose disposal. So I think there's going to be something really good to learn at that extreme versus those of you who are very, very active. So in this study, they had 18 subjects, average age 49, average fasting glucose 105, and, and the two-hour glucose postprandial levels were about 170. So you can see if you're supposed to be 80 to 90 fasting, and these people are 105, you're supposed to be 140, 150, um, you know, after eating, these, these people are at 170. So not horrible. They're pre-diabetic. They're not diabetic or even type two, but they're, they're on that threshold. And that's why they were chosen for this study. Um, what was interesting about this is just in the way they kind of constructed it. Uh, I, I haven't seen studies like this, but I, I kind of liked it for this. They, they wanted to test each subject instead of having a control group where all of you people do this and all of you do this. And then we're going to you know, either switch or we'll just compare. They had, they had every single subject do all three states. So one was just the control, you know, finding out what your body does with blood glucose. They also measured insulin and C peptide, which is a substrate that helps synthesize insulin. But they wanted to see, like, you're just going to eat a meal and then you're just going to sit there for an hour and we're going to measure what your body does at rest. Then you get to do moderate intensity exercise at a lactate threshold. So and this was kind of self-reported. So they, they said, okay, you're going to exercise at kind of a medium intensity, and we're going to stop you when you burn 200 calories. So it was on a, on a bike with, you know, uh, the, the appropriate respiration gases measured and so forth. And they want, you know, if they're, if they're lactate threshold, if they were starting to build up too much lactic acid in the bloodstream, they would kind of slow them down to make sure they're staying at what they would perceive as a moderate level. And then they also did high intensity where they went 75% between peak oxygen level. So that would be like maximum, like VO2 max and, you know, halfway in between that and that lactate threshold. So that's what they considered high intensity yet safe. And they did these at different times. So, you know, over the course of a, of a few weeks, these subjects would come in and they, they had a certain protocol. So for 72 hours, they had to, they had to do, uh, a, a certain meal plan, you know, so that they were kind of baselined out. Cause again, 72 hours is a good window of having stable glycogen levels in your, your liver, blood sugar levels should be normalized. So, so three day kind of diet protocol, then come in for this test. Then a week or two goes by, they do it again and they come in for the, the moderate intensity and then the high intensity. So they're comparing every single subject in all three States. And this, this isn't to look necessarily at long-term stuff. They weren't, they weren't testing, you know, what six months of exercise would do with insulin sensitivity and glucose disposal and fat adaptation and all that. They just wanted to see taking somebody who's normally pretty sedentary, what the difference is in glucose disposal, because we're, we're going to spend money on a glucose disposal agent, right? Like I'm going to go spend 60 bucks and I'm going to take this pill I'm gonna, you know, spend how much money for somebody to put cinnamon inside of a capsule with uh, Garcinia and and L-carnitine and so forth. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take that, and hopefully I get some kind of impact, right? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna feel a little less hunger. I'm gonna lose a little bit more body fat. Well, look what happened with these people. After one bout 
of moderate exercise, their insulin sensitivity increased 51%. That's just a few minutes of exercise. That's burning 200 calories. In, in the group, that when, when they did high intensity, their insulin sensitivity increased 85%. And, and I'm showing this particular result most because that shows even in the most dire straits you can be in physically from an exercise status level, if you just move, if you just do something, that is how you start this process of not only using more calories, but what's happening behind that calorie demand? What's pushing that calorie demand? It's the fact that you are disposing of glucose. Remember I said, let's, let's just take an average person, uh, Lainey sitting there being chauffeured to her vacation by Prince Charming is burning 60 calories an hour just sitting there. If she, well, As soon as she gets out and starts walking around, that doubles. If she picks up the pace on a treadmill, on an incline, now she's tripling that. If she does moderate intensity exercise or high intensity, I mean, look at those increases in actual glucose disposal because that's what's driving that insulin sensitivity. Now, this don't, don't start reading this. Everybody stop right now. I know as soon as I put up a big slide, everybody starts reading. This is way too much. I, I wanted to chop this up, but it's all, it's all too important. So let me take this line by line for you guys, because this is really what we get down to. So in the present study, glucose and insulin concentrations peaked approximately 30 minutes into the recovery period after the high intensity exercise. Then it decreased to, you know, to near basal levels in about an hour. So that means when somebody starts exercising, and this is a 200 calorie, intentionally 200 calorie usage, so moderate intensity work, maybe it took them 30 to 40 minutes, high intensity, maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Um, their peak use of glucose and insulin is about 30 minutes later. So we've talked about post-oxygen exercise or post-exercise oxygen consumption and how catecholamine hormones, you know, go up maximally multifold to, to drive that fat loss, converting fat into energy. Well, look what they say in this next line. It is well known that high intensity exercise is marked by a 14 to 18 fold increase in plasma catecholamine concentration. What did we just talk about last week? Epinephrine, norepinephrine, the, the adrenaline hormones. So what's happening, even when somebody's sedentary does just a modicum of exercise, those same catecholamine hormones that would drive energy production in an Olympic athlete are there promoting, guess what? Glucose disposal, because with that extra energy demand, what is the body going to use as it's its primary source of energy? Glucose. So we start going through that process in those circulating catecholamines are potent stimulated to skeletal muscle, uh, glycogenolysis and inhibit. Okay. So here's, here's where we're getting into some new territory. Those catecholamines inhibit pancreatic insulin secretion. So when they are present, you get this, this process where all of a sudden insulin is kind of shunted because we no longer need to store energy. We need to release energy. So that's what opens the window for your body to release more glucagon and even more of these catecholamine hormones for guess what? More clearance of glucose, more glucose disposal. 
So during high intensity exercise, glucose production exceeds glucose utilization. So now we're actually, we're, as, as we get into that gluconeogenesis, depending on the intensity, I, I think this could be interpreted wrongly the way they stated it. Um, it says glucose production exceeds glucose utilization, but not always, depends, resulting in a net increase in plasma glucose where insulin remains near basal levels or increased slightly. So I mentioned, uh, just off the cuff a couple of times in these research reviews, when we talk about blood sugar, that I have seen people test their blood sugar and they know that number and then they exercise and they test it again without any food and their blood sugar goes up. How can your blood sugar go up when you didn't eat any food at all? Well, this is why because of gluconeogenesis, your body is creating its own glucose from that stored fat. And depending on how fast you're using it, you're disposing of it or using it in your mitochondria, uh, then it can actually start to accumulate. And then after that exercise, when you come back down to that baseline, you can start to resynthesize it. So recovery is characterized by a rapid decrease in plasma, norepinephrine, epinephrine, so once you peak that, that 600 to 1400% increase in, in adrenaline, uh, now all of a sudden your body gets the, the stimulus that, okay, this person's not moving anymore. I don't need all of this, this fuel. And so those hormones come down dramatically. Now think about that because I want to, I want to compare non-exercise activity and exercise-induced calorie needs and what's happening biochemically in your body. So in that high energy demand, we know those catecholamine hormones skyrocket and they are everything for fat loss, way more important than thyroid hormone, way more important than the, the androgen hormones like testosterone. But as soon as we're not moving, what happens to them? They go right back down because we don't need that. And that's when insulin takes back over, insulin glucagon being the kind of balance point of what your body's doing with energy, storing or retrieving. So now, uh, you know, that, that rapid decrease in plasma epinephrine and norepinephrine, uh, allowing a compensatory insulin response to bring plasma glucose levels back to basal levels. So this is all a picture of how your body uses that energy and then how it actually decreases, um, you know, by by you know, just, just having a better response. You become more efficient at doing this. If you recall, when we talk about fat adaptation and somebody who's dieting at just a normal appropriate pace or super aggressive low calorie fasting or super aggressive keto, it's just a gradation of how fast you get quote fat adapted, which means you can increase the speed of that gluconeogenesis, your body's efficiency at turning fat into glucose, your efficiency at using it and your efficiency at coming back to that baseline. That's, that's truly just the bio or biochemical description of being in good condition when your body can do that. So you're not feeling those massive waves of hypoglycemia and hunger and so forth. So that post-exercise hyperglycemic, hyperinsulinemic response is thought to create the environment favorable for efficient glycogen resynthesis. So now you can restore that, that glucose that you didn't need, your body kind of overshot perhaps, and now you have some extra circulating glucose. Now you can go back and store it where you want. 
you want to store it as glycogen again. You don't want to store it as body fat. So now this is where insulin sensitivity comes back into play. So um, relevant to this present study, it's been shown that post-exercise muscle glycogen resynthesis rates after an acute bout of exercise are directly related to improvements in exercise-induced sensitivity. I guess I just said that. Muscle glycogen synthesis rates after high-intensity exercise are typically higher than glycogen resynthesis rates after low, uh, partially due to because of that greater muscle recruitment. So remember, you're doing high levels of exercise. The higher the level of exercise, the reason that was 85% higher with the high-intensity versus 51% with the moderate is because you're involving more muscle tissue. So the more muscle tissue you use, you know how muscle fibers are recruited and motor units and all that, um, then that just means you're involving more muscle cells, which means you're involving more mitochondria. So think of the moderate intensity exercise. We, we talked about this a few times in the last couple of weeks as well. If you're just doing a bike at moderate intensity, your whole upper body is quiet. You're probably using mostly, you know, hamstrings, maybe some people are pushers with the pedals and all that. But if you're doing burpees or you're doing Tabata type work, where you're involving a lot of muscle tissue um, or like an arc trainer or an assault bike, we're using, you know, all four limbs. You can use so much more muscle tissue to get that high intensity response and now at just a physics level, you're conditioning more cells, more muscle cells, more mitochondria to increase this kind of efficiency. So I'm going to back all the way up and say that, that that's glucose disposal, right? That's what you do every time you move your body. That's glucose disposal. Tell me what a capsule of cinnamon is going to do compared to that. It's almost laughable to think that you would even spend any money on something like this, but I'm not going to be that cynical because I know, I know they work. I know there's some kind of mechanisms of action, but I want you guys to be smart and I want to help you learn a few things as, as I'm going to learn some things that I don't currently know in terms of all of those things that different supplement companies put in there. And, and I would, I would ask you like, go just, just, pick out 10 supplement companies and look at their glucose disposal agents and start making a list of all the ingredients. I mean, that's what I did today. And even though we put a lot of stupid shit in our bodies, right? I mean, I'm not going to say like, Oh, I would never take that. Cause I don't know what's in it as I'm sitting here, you know, drinking a Gatorade or something. And I have no idea what's in that. Um, but at the same time, I don't want you to waste your money. And I and I want you to realize that there could be some synergy issues. Like if you're taking six supplements and they all have 200 micrograms of chromium because supplement companies just love to throw stuff in there so they can just show on the label, you know, how quote valuable they are. You could be getting into toxic levels or you could be downgrading receptor sites for those because they're just too high. You know, as I've always told you guys, vitamin C helps your immunity. Too much vitamin C causes cancer. Vitamin E reduces your risk of heart disease. Too much vitamin E causes heart disease. So all of these little things that companies throw in here, I would love there to be a reason. I would love to know which ones. And so an interesting test could be, what if I just took L-carnitine instead of this supplement that has six other things in it and calls that a glucose disposal supplement. 
you know, what if I took CLA? What if I took Garcinia? What if I took green tea extract? Maybe I could find the thing that really helps me, or maybe there is some synergy, but two things. I want you to think of the class of, of compound. I'm going to get back to that in a second. And I want you to think of the why. Far more than 90% of supplement companies just private label stuff. There's no scientist on the staff. They never even touch the product. They just have big private labeling manufacturers. They call their source and say, hey, can you make me something that has 500 grams of this and 200 grams of this and, and 30 micrograms of this? Like, sure. What do you want to call it? Send me the labels. We can have it to you next week. And now you've got a supplement. It's never been tested. Our government does not require anything that you produce to be tested whatsoever. And you just don't know. You don't know what these things are doing. So that's my caution. Uh, so even though I'm not sure everybody would do this, it would be interesting if, if you took those supplements, looked at those doses, looked them up, you know, go to PubMed, Google Scholar, just see what the mechanism of action is for each in ingredient. Some of them probably don't even have recommended doses or upper level doses or anything like that because they're just not studied. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that's just how loose our FDA is. But at the same time, to balance out that warning, I, I still want to emphasize that there are a lot of people who report taking things like this and they do have that good effect. So whether some of those things like L-carnitine is certainly proven to do what I said, to help fat get you know, used in the mitochondria is energy. That's a, that's a known mechanism of action. That's one of the ones that I know has been well studied. Um, other things you'll find like alpha lipoic acid, there's a certain mechanism of action that's well known. Um, back to kind of the class of these substances, you know, think, think, think of something almost as Eastern medicine, you know, a thousand years ago when a shaman would bring you this thing and say, this is what you need to be well, this is a tonic, you know, what was typically in that, um, ephedra. So it's like caffeine. It's like giving somebody a shot of meth and it's like, wow, I feel better. Well, there you go. Now that's your, that's your village shaman because he made you feel better. And he's going to give this particular supplement, you know, to everybody and everybody feels better. Um, you know, even though a few people die, most people feel better. Uh, and then, you know, there are things like, you know, with caffeine, there are opiates or all these things. I mean, when you start looking at, you know, why cinnamon would do something, why this particular root or this phytonutrient, like what do they really do? You know, Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. But let me open it back up to you guys. Hopefully you'll have some questions that I can answer. If you stick to physiology, we're on safe ground. If you're getting to some of these really nuanced ingredients, I, I may not have the answers, but that's why we have Kevin. Kevin will. Any, uh, any questions? Who, who has taken anything like this and you say, I love it. Like it, it, I feel it. I feel less hunger. I feel more energy. I feel less hypoglycemia. Anybody ever take anything, a, a, a proposed GDA and, and they, you've had that discernible of results? I, I actually have. We, we, we produced one, you know, our company for a while when I had a supplement company. Um, and every single person who took it also felt those results. And it did have chromium and it did have garcinia. Uh, we had four ingredients. I wanted to keep it simple. 
And we did some testing, um, you know, I, I, everything that I could do, not being a biochemist myself, but working with some biochemists and a food science team, you know, I, I went through um, as great of a job that I could do, you know, but, but at the same time, it was still pretty limited, um, but people got some great, great results. So uh, Chris says, I found the 500 milligrams of berberine between meals makes me hungry. So, uh, so that, that's what I would kind of expect. If it's a real glucose disposal agent, like it might actually do that. It's bringing blood sugar down. Um, but at the same time, maybe once your body gets adapted to that and, and insulin sensitivity may be increasing because you're disposing of glucose faster, maybe you would have that direct metabolic effect. So if, if berberine or barberry root uh, or leaf extract, if that had some kind of that almost ephedra type effect where it's a, a direct cellular stimulant, I could see that happening, Chris. And that's why you could feel hungrier, but you could make the argument that it is making you lose body fat faster because as blood sugar comes down, gluconeogenesis, the conversion of fat to glucose has to increase. So very, very possible. Any other uh, thoughts, questions? Anybody have any, any stories, things you've used? I used L-carnitine. Um, I don't currently use it, but I do an energy drink that has it in it. Um, but I did find that I did better with just L-carnitine than stuff that had a bunch of different things. So I just ended mm -hmm. up buying just L-carnitine. Um, but I mean, it was just energy. I don't know, but I think one of the questions I had was, um, one of our local trainers, um, he's often said like, before you go have a carb meal that he suggests GDAs before the carb meal. Um, why would that, why would he be suggesting? Well, so again, if you just look at the cliche answer, like if you went to Google and typed in why do glucose disposal agents work or how do they work, you're going to see this canned answer that you'll see repeated everywhere. They help partition or shuttle energy, carbs, fat into cells, into muscle, into mitochondria to be used as energy. So if you take that ahead of time, then supposedly your body is primed to do that. Um, L-carnitine is supposed to work that way. And this is why I said, I want to do this particular uh, group of research reviews kind of segmentally, because I want to do one where I just look at every ingredient. Um, but I really think most of these claims have just not even been studied. Some of them have, like, like even the study that talked about L-carnitine here, when they do a study and they say, okay, we're going to see if it does reduce blood sugar over time, or we're going to see if it reduces blood sugar faster. Is there really anything to this? They're not doing epidemiological studies where they're looking at, you know, like almost in a Petri dish, like we're watching this happen in real time. They're still just measuring results. They give people the supplement control groups, et cetera, and they measure to see what's happening. So that gives us an answer doesn't give us the answer or even the best answer. Like, should you take it here or here or here? Um, L-carnitine is one that I also felt a good effect from. Like I would actually get hot right away from my cardio. Like if normally it takes me 10 or 15 minutes to start sweating, get my heart rate up a certain level, like L-carnitine got me there much faster. I did find though, that one particular supplement that I was taking 
it was in liquid form and the L-carnitine is suspended in glycerol. So as I was taking a tablespoon of this, that's like 50 calories. That's, that's ethyl alcohol. That's a polyol. So of course I feel warmer. I just had 50 calories. Um, you know, that's, that's where I was getting that from. So if you take just a capsule of pure L-carnitine, you know, then all of a sudden I didn't have that result. So I'm not sure that's like trickery, but you know, these supplement companies certainly aren't telling you that you, by the way, you're getting 50 grams of a polyol here uh, for every tablespoon. Um, injectable L-carnitine. Uh, I have never heard of people injecting that uh, into training while working. You know, th those again, I, that's, that's something that I'm going to wait and say, you know, let, let me look up some different studies because with this kind of question, what does this particular ingredient do or that supplement? I'm not going to look at just one study. I'm going to look at as many as we can. And I just don't think there are going to be that many, but I'll, I'll be able to show you, I'll, I'll create kind of a chart and we'll go through as many ingredients as we can and see what research is really there. Um, Cause I just, I don't feel comfortable saying much about them until we do that. Part of most of today's intent was just to show what actual glucose disposal is like what your body mechanistically is doing in your body with glucose, both sides of glucose, um, you know, synthesis and, and usage, how that happens with exercise, because coming back to those catecholamine hormones and even non-exercise activity, if you guys go back through our research reviews, I have shown you studies that have reverse engineered other weight loss studies and show that as soon as somebody goes in a calorie deficit, almost as a pure equilibrium, they just start moving less. If I take 200 calories out of my day, I will naturally burn 200 fewer calories the day because I'll just sit a little longer. I won't get out of my chair as often. I won't like, I'll just find every reason in the world not to do the same activity. And that's just normal biochemistry. Your body is, is pushing you in that direction. So you have to be very careful to keep your non-exercise movement up. And, you know, as I, I'm going to give you one quick story to, to wrap up today. One of my local clients who is struggling a little bit to lose, you know, she had a good result, you know, loss of 10 pounds kind of out of the gate. Now she's relying on her two or three sessions in our facility and, and I've asked her, what, what else are you doing outside of this? Are you doing any exercise, any cardiovascular work, any walking, anything? She's like, nope, not doing it. And, but now that she's reached that first 10 pounds of loss and is kind of at a plateau, she said, you know, she, she's just kind of a snacker. So she works in an office some of the time. She works at home some of the time. Pretty high-powered executive type person, really driven, really wants this. She's only got about 10 more pounds she wants to lose. Um, so we're not talking about obesity or being sedentary. But to this point about diet versus movement, I said, if I can just get you to create this habit, five days a week, I need you at home regardless whether it's a day you come in here or not, I need 10 minutes a day for you to exercise. And we're going to increase it gradually. And I talked to her about high intensity work. It may be just two, you know, it's like you're going to jump with a jump rope for 30 seconds. 
rest for 30 seconds, do that twice. That may be all we start with with the first week, but I've got to have you starting that habit. Because if we can get this response every day, if we can get this catecholamine response in that, that post-exercise oxygen consumption and, and you get that catecholamine response up and then she gets better and better and better. So her intensity can increase and she can involve more muscle tissue. And now we have that conditioning at, at, at more muscle tissue level. Um, then you're going to see somebody who's, who in another month says, man, I didn't even have to decrease my food and I lost five pounds this month. And all it was, was because I, I moved intentionally and, and I guess what I disposed glucose because every time you dispose glucose, then you're going to create that need to resynthesize those glycogen levels. And that's going to come from gluconeogenesis, which is turning body fat into glucose. So Another, another coin analogy or metaphor, two sides of this coin, I'm going to investigate those glucose disposal agents and their ingredients and constituents. We're going we're gonna to get to that in the next session or two, the next Friday or two. But I also want to show you how that is such a tiny, 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 tiny part of this. It's all the exercise. It's all the intentional movement. It's the non-exercise activity throughout the day, the intentional getting up, moving. If you sit at a desk all day, uh, like my wife sits at her desk most of the day. I, I got her a standing computer, like a Veridesk, so you can go up and down. And uh, now, because again, it's, it's sometimes you just get stuck in a rut and you're not doing it. So now this week, she's kind of looking at her computer and it's like, I'm going to stand for an hour, sit for an hour, stand for an hour, sit for an hour. And those are the kind of things with that, that non-exercise activity that can be another hundred calories a day, 200 calories a day, that kind of thing. But then when you get into that exercise induced catecholamine response, that's truly where you can do a lot. So we're going to talk about that more. Uh, you, you as well, Kevin, I'm going to, I'm going to jump off here as well, but thanks for being here. Uh, let me go ahead and wrap up for everybody. At least two more sessions, one looking at ingredients and then one kind of wrapping it all up in terms of what we can do with food, exercise and supplements, because I, I do want to say that if, if anything like this can help somebody, I'm all for it. I just want to make sure that we can give good recommendations.